Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're finishing our exploration of Matthew's gospel with the great commission Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew 28, 16-20. We discuss the role of doubt in the life of faith, noticing that Jesus addresses both those who worship him and those who hesitate seeming to make no distinction between them. We talk about the disciples' commission to baptize and teach the nations, inaugurating people into an alternative way of life to that on offer from the empire, as given by God in the Torah and by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And we wrestle with the concept of Jesus' authority over the earth, which sounds an awful lot like the claims the empire makes to justify its power over the people. What might it look like to envision an alternative form of authority grounded not in power over others, but in the liberating power of life for all. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am okay, but I can see that you are not in your usual background. You're I am the not. traveling the traveling worm. I'm back traveling on the, worm. the traveling worm yeah. cast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Since we couldn't coordinate the Bible worm on the road, I've just decided that I'm going to record Bible worm in random places around and just pretend like uh, we're doing a Bible worm road trip. Did you, I think maybe we're close enough in age that this show could have been on when you were a kid. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? I know that is show. That I don't show? know that I ever watched it, but. I mean, I didn't like, I was really bad at it, but it's like that. Like where in the world is. Bobby the Worm, and you just show up in different places, and then people can guess <laughs> where you are. Yeah, but you have wearing to give a us worm hints. outfit. That would be the me- the best part. If I, oh, we yeah. need a Bible Worm costume. Can you imagine? <laughs> and then we could show up at Obviously. things as Bible Worm. Oh, that's so dignified. I would love that. Dignity is not <laughs> one of my great on strong list. suits. <laughs> yeah, dignity. You've got dignity. I I don't know about me. I am recording this podcast in back I'm back in Maryville, Tennessee at New Providence Presbyterian Church where my wife grew up and where my in-laws are members. We're visiting mm-hmm. my in-laws as you might have put together from that little hint there. <laughs> so, yeah, th- so it's the second time I've recorded here this spring. Lovely. It's a nice little Well, place. I hope that the holiness of this space infuses your teaching, Bobby. Mm. That's a grand hope. That is a grand hope, and maybe a <laughs> maybe a lot for this, this morning. I've been traveling with my children for the last six days, and it's I love a my children. Kind of holiness, it yeah. is. Yes, being in the car with them. Anyway, it's been fun. It's been fun, but also <laughs> there's some inhabiting to do in order to make this a holy space for me. Yeah. yeah. Also, I'm in Maryville, Tennessee, which is one of those places that you can't pronounce. I'm not even sure I say it quite right. It looks like Maryville. Yeah. And then there's these T-shirts that say Mervil, but that's that's not exactly right either. So you'll see it like M U R R V I L L E Mervil. So it's something like Marvel, <laughs> Marvel. Like you're that's, gonna say Mary, but then instead of the E, you say Uh Marvel. Sort of like Louisville. Yes, de- yes, which I also can't say. I will yeah. say. I I think it's only like from my little area of Long Island where I grew up that we differentiate between M A R R Y, M A R Y, and M E R R Y. Oh my gosh! Three I, different vowels. Okay, say. Uh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to say, say them. How do you I'm say the name? A, I'm not a circus animal, Bobby. <laughs> how do you say the name of Jesus's mom? Mary. How do you say? The thing at Christmas. Mary. Oh, she, I guess Mary's also at Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that wasn't a good example. True. Ooh, say. That was confusing. Say, Merry Christmas, Mary. You're having a baby even though you're not married. <laughs> <laughs> Can you? <laughs> 
gonna that'll be a special episode. Yeah. Fun with vowels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I really yeah. want you to say it. You're not gonna say it, are you? You're not doing it. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Mary. You're having a baby even though you're not married. Oh. And my ear's not good enough to tell the difference. I don't know if I did the sec- the difference between the second and the third. Yeah. Well enough. I do remember that. So normally in your life, you do not have what I perceive as a Long Island accent. But I remember a couple of times in graduate school, like a friend of yours would call you on your cell phone and then you would <laughs> slip into this whole other way, this whole other dialect. It was fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It happens like that. It does. My family feels the same way when I speak to Southerners on the phone. Oh, yes. Yes, I do, I do not think of you as speaking Southern, but that is because I speak Southern, and therefore. <laughs> so, Amy, we are in our last podcast of the narrative lectionary in the Gospel of Matthew, and mm-hmm. we're in the very last five verses of Matthew in chapter Only 20. five verses. I know. I know. Yeah. Chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. We just have skipped a couple of verses, and so I don't know if we need any context. But do we need any context? I mean, I can tell you what happened in between. The most interesting thing to me is that where we left off, Jesus was talking to the women. Yes. And they were going to go and tell the disciples. And then where it picks up is just talking about the disciples. The women are not in this part that we're about to read. But the text never narrates the women telling the disciples. Instead, it narrates this other thing that's happening among the sort of religious authorities and how they're trying to manage this situation, which I just thought was was interesting. It sort of leaves this plot line and goes to, meanwhile, here's what's going on, you know, that would sort of work at counter purposes to this message spreading the way that they wanted to spread. I think we talked in the Easter podcast a little bit about that sort of the what's happening with the Roman soldiers and the mm-hmm. telling people. Now here they plant the the rumor that the disciples came and stole the body and they're trying to sort of head off at the past this idea that Jesus was actually resurrected. And we talked yeah. about how maybe Matthew's community actually was dealing with stories in their own time that Jesus hadn't yeah. actually been resurrected but had simply been stolen. And so it's just interesting to see Matthew kind of grappling with that. And that and that conversation was really helpful to me and in reading those little interstitial verses because, you know, when it says this story is still told among the Jews to this day, I right. was like, yep. yeah, they are <laughs> exactly doing what what you were talking about last yeah. time. They are trying to deal with things that people are saying and try to explain why someone would, where that story came from. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. So that, as you were saying, that story also gives us sort of some narrative space to move the story back up to Galilee and so mm-hmm. we remember that the message that the women had been given at the, at, the, at the tomb was to go and tell the disciples that Jesus was resurrected and that they should go and meet him in Galilee. Mm-hmm. So apparently they have done that and the disciples have responded. And so we pick up in chapter 28, verse 16. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. The first thing that stands out to me is just that word 11 there. Yeah, I know. Did you want to so say anything about minus, that? Is this there were 12, right? There were 12. So is this minus Judas? Yeah, so that references to Judas who betrayed Jesus. And then in Matthew's gospel, Judas feels regret for what he's done to Jesus. He tries to give back the money. But the priests and the elders say, we don't want the money back. And so um, Judas sort of throws the money down and then goes and hangs himself. Mm-hmm. In the Luke's gospel, in the Luke-Acts sequence, Judas dies by some sort of like his, I don't even know quite what happens, but his bowels. Okay, that's what I was thinking. I was like, didn't he like explode in a <laughs> field or something? Yeah. In, okay. In that Luke's gospel, his bowels version. explode in the field. Yes. And... One of the things that's interesting is Luke in Acts goes through the process of narrating how they replace the 11th disciple. So you get almost immediately back to 12. Mm. And so the the 11 here reads pointedly to me in an interesting way. Like you could have just said the disciples. Yeah. Because everybody knows if you've been reading, you know that Judas has died. 
But yeah. so Matthew makes a point of 11. And I just, I just find that interesting. I don't know if there's anything to do with that or not, but it's interesting. It is really, I mean, that is really interesting. And it, it, it reminds you of either of the loss or of the, I don't know, one of the, one of the more tragic aspects of this whole story. Maybe it, I don't know, does it, no, I think this is pushing it too hard. I'll say what I'm thinking, but I think this is dumb. I'll put that out there to begin with. Like, whenever it's sort of like the 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 table's not totally full, there's one empty chair. Yes. I feel like it pulls me in a little bit as the reader to be like, yes. there's still one empty chair yeah. at this table. Yeah. Not that you could, like, really be one of the 12 disciples, but I don't know. I really like that, Amy. Like, the, to me, there's two. there were two sort of ways that my head was going to go with it if I were going to try to interpret that. Like, what is the significance of that? And that's one of them. I think that's really nice that there's like 12 feels complete. And, you know, there are 12 tribes of Israel. There have been 12 disciples. 12, that's a nice number. 11 is a less nice number. And so you feel that lack. And so I I love that way of reading that where, you know, we are reading this or the, you know, the early readers of Matthew are reading this and there's a space at the table. And so we are sort of invited forward. And so Matthew is kind of talking to the church in that sense as the 12th disciple. I think that's interesting. And I mean, I, I want to hedge it the way that you hedged it. Like yeah. we, we should not yeah. think of ourselves. Any one person should not think of themselves as a 12th yeah. disciple. Yeah. But I like that idea that <laughs> there's an invitation it's suggestive. here. suggestive, yeah. The other way that I w- would maybe interpret that is the same observation, but, th- but going the other direction, which is they don't they don't let the incompleteness or the imperfection mm-hmm. of the community hold them back from doing what they've been asked to do. So they yeah. know they're not at full strength. They know they're only 11 twelfths of their community. Yeah. And, and yet they press ahead and do this thing. Even as yeah. I'm saying that, I am also aware that they wouldn't be there in the first place if it weren't for the women. Yeah. And yet we're still only talking about 11. Like what about Mary and Mary, you know? Uh, it is women? very interesting for for all the ways in which the role of women has just been lifted up so profoundly before this, that they, they are totally absent from the story right here at this moment. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what else to say about it, but it is really notice, noticeable. Like they were crucial. The message would have, the church would have died. Uh, between yeah. the resurrection and this moment had the women not carried the gospel. They were the only ones who knew the gospel and they took it and they did what they needed to do. And then the story writes them out yeah. right here. I don't know what to do with it either, but it is uh, notable. But there it is. Yeah. There it is. Mm-hmm. My students in my Ration or Empire in the Bible class would be interested in talking about that as a moment of like patriarchal erasure of women's stories, you know, um, and, and they would be right about that. So they've gone to Galilee, where, and the, Matthew says where Jesus told them to go. Do you have any thoughts about the significance of Galilee? You know, the, the gospel largely unfolded in Galilee, and then Jesus goes to Jerusalem one time and gets killed mm-hmm. and resurrected, and then he says, go back and meet me in Galilee. This is different than Luke's gospel where Jesus actually appears to them in Jerusalem. Do you have any thoughts about that? How I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's a right answer there, as, as with many things, but— the significance of that? The the only thought that is coming to me is is from my uh, my internal Bobby voice, which <laughs> is that they have you know like there were things that had to happen in the center of religious power at that time. Yes, and then this is intentionally moving moving away from that and sort of starting something, starting this new movement maybe sort of officially outside of that central place. Yeah. I, lo- I love your internal Bobby. That guy's awesome. <laughs> yeah. He has a lot to say. He really talks my ear off sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how hey. you think about it? Or do you have uh, do you have other, other ways you would take that or other ways you would draw that out? Honestly, that was almost word for word what I was going to say if you didn't say oh, it. Wow. So, so there really it is. good internal Bobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's significant in the same ways that we talked about. Jesus found a, a root for his gospel, found his foothold outside of the structures of power. And then when he's here giving the church 
its commission, giving the disciples their role, he takes them back outside of the center of power. Where, I mean, it's, you know, we had talked about this, this life that Jesus has called the disciples to is a difficult way to live in the face of the empire. And so to go somewhere where the empire is less entrenched outside of the centers of power, Jesus started his ministry that way and he's, he's invited them to do the same thing. I think that's significant. And then maybe we think then about our own communities and how do they relate to power? And so where do we, where do we need to get our start, find our footing? Yeah. I've been wondering too, Bobby, and I hadn't been thinking about it so much in terms of Galilee as in terms of the fact that they're on a mountain. Mm. About the end of Ju- the, okay, there are some parallels here that make sense to me, and some that don't. So okay. I, you know, I don't want to like overdraw this, but I'm thinking about when Moses is meeting with, you know, is is sort of giving instructions to the people at the end yes. of Deuteronomy, and you know, is on a mountain, and so that calls up some of this. But now I'm thinking about the location of that, like it's. I mean, the the connection that I most want to draw to that is this is the beginning of something new. Like you are, you have gotten a lot of preparation before, and this is the moment that you're heading into something new. And I'm not sure how you would feel about this interpretation as a Christian, but as like, though Jesus is with them, Jesus is also not... Uh, walking around like a human anymore. Okay, I don't know quite how to say that, but like it's it's right before Moses's death that this happens. Yes. Their relationship to Jesus is different. Yes, I would guess now after that resurrection, and I don't know. It's just being and and so part of what's so striking in the Moses story is this: they're not in the land of Israel. They're not in the promised land. They're on the cusp of it. Right. And so I wonder if there's any anything we would want to draw about being sort of like just outside of where things are going to go down for this charge that they're getting. I love so much about that, Amy, that I, I think we should hang on to that. Cause I, I think that's going to come back. Mm. I think that parallel to Moses, I think is exactly right. I think that's really important. This is the farewell speech given on the mountain, preparing the people for a new way of life. And Jesus is getting ready to give instructions. Like, here's what you need to do. And that's exactly what the book of Deuteronomy, like the book of Deuteronomy in that sense is Moses' uh, final speech, and he's given them exactly mm-hmm. a way of life. The Jesus is not going to, is going to be present, but not walking around. Like that's a, a little bit like to how to interpret that is a little bit awkward, but as a, yeah, as a Christian, yeah. you would affirm that exactly. Like Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. He's not going to be with them in the same way. And yet he's still present. Moses, even though he dies, is still present with the people in the sense of the Torah is still present with them. And so there's some connection. They're not, they're not exact parallels as you've, as you've said, but I think it's important. And I think it'll be worth keeping our eyes on that as we go. Mm. Jesus has been fashioned by Matthew as a new Moses along the way, right? He goes up on the mountain and delivers the interpretation of the Torah and he escapes out of Egypt and he, and he does many things. So I think that is a, is a good thing to keep an eye on. Hmm. So in verse uh, 17, when the disciples see him, they worshiped him or they prostrate themselves before him is what it really says. Hmm. And then some doubted, or you could translate that Greek word as some hesitated. Hmm. I'm just int- like, there's a lot happening in that, just that brief narration. Yeah. Can you give us a place to dig into it? I mean, I just feel like it's so rich with questions in part because the the text, I don't feel like it's telling me what I should think about that. Yeah. You know? And so what I'm wondering is, I mean, it is, it, 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 how much of a problem is that, that they hesitated or doubted? Or is that, I don't. I I, can, I really can't tell from from the text like how much of a yeah. problem. Yeah. It is. Does your translation have a but some doubted or and some doubted or just some doubted? It's but some doubted in the but some doubted. Yeah, that's what mine has also. So I guess we sh- I guess we shouldn't imagine that there are people who are both worshiping and doubting. Yeah. 
it's one or the other. Well, I don't know. So your your question is, do we have some worshipers and some yeah. doubters, like sheep yeah. and goats? Yeah. Or do we have like a mixed, like I am both worshiping and doubting at the same time? That's a really interesting question. The Greek there is just a particle de, which can mean and or but. Yeah. It is a contrastive, but not a strong one, I think. Yeah. What difference does it make for you? Like, I think I can guess, but I'm I'm curious what how you parse that. I guess the word but sounds a little bit more to me like, I mean, I don't even know. I'm just, I'm trying to find different ways to get at that question of like, can can worship and doubt or worship and hesitation coexist in one person? Or is this differentiating between the people? Yeah. And that's just a big old theological question. I mean, do you feel like you get, how do you, how do you read that? Do you feel like you get a hint from the text or, or from other things that you would bring to the text? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's, so my first read of it is some of them immediately worship him. Some of them don't because mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. just not quite sure what to do. And so I think, I think my first instinct is to read it a, a little more like there's a division between mm-hmm. the people. But then the very next thing that happens, which we've not read yet, Jesus spoke to them. And so yes. Jesus addresses all of those people, yeah. the ones who worship, the ones who hesitate, and so I think even if you have not gone with the interpretation you were offering of mixed emotions in one person, mm-hmm. you still end up with mixed responses in one group, all of whom are addressed by Jesus, which comes really close to the same idea that in every community there is a mixture of response and Jesus is not differentiating like, shame on you, go away. I'm going to talk to these folks. Jesus yeah. is saying, all of you, here, here's what I have to say to you. I love the idea of bringing that closer to home and saying within, in, within any one person, these two responses might coexist simultaneously. I don't know that, I don't know that you can quite get there just like insisting on a grammatical yeah. point, but it's yeah. a really beautiful theological point. I, re- I really love it. Yeah, I mean, you. yeah. We have to remind ourselves that this is, even though Jesus told them this is what was going to happen, this is still really crazy. Yes. This is crazy, crazy. town crazy yes. what is happening. Yes. So I can just imagine people sort of like trying to process and integrate what they are seeing and experiencing with everything they have known about the world their entire lives. And I like the word hesitation, that hesitation is a possibility there and yes. not just doubt. Doubt seems... That has a little harder edge to it to me. Yes. But hesitation is just sort of like, I just need, I need a moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need a moment. That's exactly right. Somebody on the Bible Worm Collaborative was talking about the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich. And I will say I'm, an, I'm not a Tillichian, so I, this is not me at all. But their interpretation on the Bible Worm Collaborative was Tillich's, one of Tillich's points was that doubt isn't, sometimes you talk about doubt and faith as being sort of opposite one another. And they were reading this as sometimes doubt is necessary to faith, which I think is an interesting idea. Or at least with this text, I think you could at least say doubt is not antithetical to faith. So Mm -hmm. it is possible to both hesitate and also be faithful. Mm -hmm. Whether you need to to hesitate in order to be faithful, I don't know in this text, but there's nothing here that suggests when you doubt, when you hesitate, that suddenly now you're just going to be get written out of the story. Right, right. There's no one here that seems to be written out of the story. Exactly right. Hello, fellow Bible worms. My name is Amy Marie Epp. I'm a pastor at Seattle Mennonite Church in Seattle, Washington. I support Bible worm at the early worm level, $8 a month. And I consider that professional budget dollars very well spent. What I especially love about being a patron at this level is having access to those podcast episodes a week early, since I'm often working that far ahead on sermons or on worship prep. Also, by the way, I love this sticker, which I put on my water bottle immediately. Amy and Bobby's insight and wisdom have become an invaluable resource for me. 
I look forward every week to hearing them chew through that biblical text together with curiosity and with humor. It feels like I'm a part of the conversation. That's why I wanted to support them in making Bible Worm possible. It still feels like a gift each week to have that Patreon episode land in my inbox. I hope all of you who are listening will also consider becoming patrons. And now, back to this week's episode. All right, shall we press on? Yeah, let's do it. So picking up in verse 18, Jesus came near and spoke to them. I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Okay, this is uh, a text quite famous in the Christian tradition, Mm. often called the Great Commission. And, you know, many, many churches will have this as like their mission statement kind of thing. Like this is what we are about. And so I, there's a lot, even though this is a fairly straightforward verse, I think, or a short verse anyway, there's a lot to talk about. I wanted to start though with this idea of Jesus receiving all authority in heaven and on earth. That's, that's big. That, it, that is big. Uh, this <laughs> reminds me a, a little bit of um, like He-Man. This is He-Man, like <laughs> master of the universe. Yes. Like I will say I was surprised. I was surprised that this is what Jesus said. When Jesus opens his mouth first to the disciples. Yes. That the first thing he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Like, yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a weird opener. <laughs> or it was a surprising opener. I was surprised. I think I know what I think I know where you're headed, but can you just talk about the ways in which that's surprising? Um, I guess I didn't. Okay, I thought we were coming to this like, like better understanding of what is really truly true. Like, what is God's kingdom that I've been explaining to you this whole time, and I've been telling you this would happen, and now there's some sort of like. Um, I thought we were coming to like a moment of like capital T truth. Yes. And that that comes out as, and so I'm having a little trouble understanding how that relates to the idea of authority. Yeah. Like I had been thinking of Jesus as like the understander, that's not a word, bringer of the truth, teacher of the truth, person who can like explain and embody the truth, who, you know, who, who gets it better than, you know, it seems the teacher, the other teachers who have been in the community. So then when, when it changes to authority, I'm like, is he the one who decides what is true? Or he is the one who understands the truth and so can adjudicate between things that happen? Or I don't know. I get all tied up between what is the relationship between authority and truth. And I just, I didn't. I didn't think I didn't think we were one. I didn't think we were talking about authority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus has been said to have authority throughout the gospel in smaller ways, like he teaches as one with authority yes. and not as the scribes yes. and the Pharisees and things like yes. that. But this is this feels different than that, right? He has authority in the in the realm of what is true. Yes. Now he seems and to have authority over, over all heaven and earth. Like, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. No, one of the things that was interesting, I'm talking about the Bible Worm Collaborative more and more these days, but one of the things, That's I think it might've been Terry who writes our liturgy. She said, you know, this is exactly what Satan tempted Jesus with back in the wilderness to say, I will give Whoa, you authority Terry, over wow. everything you can see if only you will worship me. She's like, well, but what's mm-hmm. the difference? Like you just ended up in the same place. You just got there a different way, which I think is a <laughs> really Keen observation and an important one. Yeah. Yeah. My th- quick response about that, but I don't know if it's, I don't know if it settles anything, is that what, what Satan offered Jesus was sort of a shorthand authority over. I will give you power. And all you have to do is give yourself over to the worship of Satan, which I would talk about, I think, in this context, or, you know, in the way that I do. Your internal Bobby's probably saying, Empire, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Give your ways over to uh, to the authority, the way the empire knows how to wield it. And I'll give that to you. Jesus instead has 
humbled himself and ultimately given his life. And then rather than wielding the power of death as the empire does, has won a victory over the power of death exactly by dying and being resurrected, which is a different kind of thing altogether. So where you end up is authority, but the the basis of the authority is completely different. One is based in the power of death, the other based in the power of life that overcomes death. Mm. Now, what that looks like exactly now, now that you've got the authority, I think, like what do you do with that authority, I think is, a, is another question. Does that settle anything? I, or was that just a bunch of theolog- theologizing? No, that is, that it is helpful to me to have that, to be reminded that this was, this is what Satan had on offer too, but coming at it, you know, from a very different, a different uh, grounding, a different route. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe I understand a little better. I just, I feel like this is not how I've been understanding Jesus all throughout the text. And all of a sudden I'm like, wait, this is where it ends with Jesus has authority. Yeah. So, okay. So there's something, there's a, there's a plot twist. I don't yeah. know. Not really a plot twist. I just, yeah. yeah. I think what you're struggling with is the right thing to struggle with. And I think many Christians, probably including myself, who love many things about Matthew's gospel, get really uncomfortable right here at the end because suddenly it seems to be shifting to this sort of power over model and this, mm-hmm. I mean, like a spiritual conquest of the world almost, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in just a minute. And I think it, to many of us, it also feels like we thought we were headed over here, and instead now we've just now it's just an exercise of authority over the nations. I think it, so. I, all that just to say, I think the surprise and and discomfort that you're feeling. I'm is glad not to know to that you. I that that w- that's I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. I think the source for that image of authority and power probably is back to Daniel 7 and that mm-hmm. son of man text that we talked about when we were discussing Matthew 25. In that text, as you remember, the nations have been rising out of the sea like beasts and then their authority is taken from them. And then it's given to this one who comes out of the cloud who's described as the son of man and rule, glory, and kingship were given over to him. All people, nations, and languages will serve him. His rule is an everlasting one. And so at one level, what Matthew seems to be doing here is taking this image of deauthorizing the empires from Daniel and saying, okay, the empires of the world, which we have been talking about, no longer have legitimate authority. Now that authority is vested in Jesus, who is the son of man, who now Mm -hmm. has all authority. And so where you and I have been talking all through Matthew as he's like competing kingdoms, and all of that kind of thing. Now, now it's clear enough who the sort of victory is going to go to in, in the end. Maybe that's been clear all no, along. No, that that's helpful because as you were talking, I was it was started to feel a little strange to me that that Jesus is is saying here not just all authority over Earth, which is sort of I guess what I had been imagining. Wouldn't it be so great if the divine kingdom came to earth? But like authority over heaven too, as though like Jesus can shape the contours of the heavenly kingdom. Oh yeah. And like, that seems like a big deal. I mean, I know Trinitarian theology is wherever it is at this point in history, but that just, that seems like a big deal. But then when you just mentioned the, um, how we've been talking about the, I don't know, not quite tension, but the the two parallel kingdoms where that are they're trying to bring closer and closer together, the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom. I it makes though I can't sort out all the details, it makes some sense to say like they are really all it's all one and it's all under this one I don't know whether to use the word person or not this one yeah. entity being <laughs> yeah. and the one LLC, Jesus Christ. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I think I, I, that's really helpful. And you know, the image of authority of heavenly authority that we've seen is back in Matthew 25, which is the scene of the final judgment and the separation of the sheep and the goats. So we've already seen Jesus mm-hmm. exercising his heavenly authority and the way he exercised it 
was by separating the those who treat the poor and vulnerable well and those who don't. And that's sort of their binding, you know, this is the separation, the weeding out of empire from empire of Rome from empire of heaven. So there is that separation. And Jesus' authority in that sense is it's power, but it's it's power to judge. And the yeah. judgment is based on compassion or something like that. Mm-hmm. So this is a different exercise mm-hmm. of power than Rome's mm-hmm. power. Is a, but, it, but it's nonetheless an exercise of power. Right. I think I want Jesus to like go kapow and like everyone loves each other. But what Matthew insists on is like in order to get to a good, a beautiful place, you've got to get rid of some folk. And those are the folks who it never occurs to them to you know, feed a hungry person. Yeah. So then Jesus gives us a therefore, and then instructs the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations and doing two things, baptizing them. And we get our Trinitarian formula in the name Mm -hmm. of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. There's so much going on in there, but to me, you can't really take the baptizing and the teaching separately like they go to they go together yeah do you have any sense of like how do you understand what jesus has asked them to do here Hmm. i mean in some ways i feel like it's a i'm already disagreeing with myself but i'm just going to say the original thought in some ways it, it almost seems like the the urgent message that the women got to go tell the disciples like Okay, it's a bigger message. <laughs> like there, there's more content to it. But like now that you can see where this has all led, go tell the others. Yeah. You know, like maybe there have mm. been some others who came into Israel and got this information. Like it wasn't limited to the people of Israel. But now if Jesus really has authority over the entire earth, the people need to know they need to know the new deal. Like yes. this is, they, they need they need to know. And for me, I mean, I guess I don't totally understand baptism. Probably, certainly not in the way that you understand baptism. But I mean, you can baptize someone, but if they don't know, if they don't even know the teachings that they're trying to uphold, like what, I don't know, that just doesn't seem like a really richly meaningful activity. Yeah, yeah. Now that's really helpful. It's it's it, this kind of in the way you were talking about authority coming out of the blue. Baptism also comes a little bit out of the blue. Yeah. In this passage because we haven't talked about baptism since John baptized Jesus back in chapter yeah. 3 or wherever that was. And so this has not really been a theme of Jesus's ministry in Matthew, but then it comes it's the like urgent point of the final instruction. Yeah. And so I do like I have lots of thoughts about baptism as a 21st century Christian, but trying to think about like, well, but what has baptism been in Matthew's gospel? It goes all the way back to that baptism when John baptized and Jesus said it's necessary to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And we talked about how that baptism was a turning away from one way of living toward another way of living, sort of a marker of an entrance. We talked about it at that point as giving up one's allegiance to the kingdom of Rome and giving Mm -hmm. one's allegiance to the kingdom of God and living a different kind of a life. Mm -hmm. And so like, if you apply all of that here and say, okay, well go back and listen to the podcast on the baptism of Jesus and then bring that up back up here, which I didn't do in preparation, which I probably should have, but for you, dear listener can go do that if you want. Uh, Then this is, you know, the baptism is into a different way of life and it's invite the people into a way of living that is in contrast to the way of living which they have been mm-hmm. given by, you know, we've talked a number of times about there's there's really only two options it seems in Matthew's gospel. You're either following the logic of the empire or you're following the logic of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe we would want to nuance, you know, as modern ecumenical interfaith people, we would want to say, no, there's actually other ways of expressing truth out there, but Matthew's not thinking about that. So if they don't know that, then you've got to teach, you've got to teach them that and inaugurate them into that way of living. Yeah. Yeah. That's so helpful, Bobby, because you're, you're really grounding me back 
in in that conversation about baptism and in you know my own understanding of rituals of of the mikvah of immersion in the Jewish community that would have you know that these things are all related of course and the things that like to choose to immerse in the mikvah it really marks uh, a different state of being like a, a you, it can be at the time of conversion or it can be at you can do it you know all, all different times a person might do it but it's a way to ritually mark a rebirth in some ways yes yeah and so maybe you would want to sort of have the rebirth and then you be and then you learn the the ways of the new kingdom but it yeah i mean it's asking for an active decision to uh like change something fundamental about the state of who you are or how you orient yourself in the world. Or, That's exactly right. Yeah. A second, like the rephrasing, because uh, those are both related, right? The changing of who you are and the way you act in the world. To me, at least the way that my community tends to, we tend to emphasize changing something about who you are, I think is what baptism does. Mm-hmm. And so I want to put the weight on this, on the other foot, which is changing the way that you live in the world. Mm-hmm. which I actually think is also the weight, the foot that Matthew puts his weight on mm-hmm. in this gospel, going back to that Matthew 25, 31 passage where Jesus is weighing out people's final judgments and it is exactly based on, did you treat people with compassion or did you not? Mm-hmm. And it's not about some sort of internal orientation. Exactly, like, I mean, you've got to wear the clothing of righteousness and all of this things, but it's not about which community did you belong to or you know, what did you do on Saturday or Sunday morning or any of those things? It's about how did you treat people in your in your life? I think the suggestion here is that you don't know that. You don't know how to treat people well unless you've heard this alternative. The empire's voice is so strong that yeah. you just know how to treat people by imperial logic unless someone tells you otherwise. The language here, the nations, is ta'ethne again. And one way of reading that, although it's not the way we read it in Matthew 25, but um, one way of reading that is to ethne refers to the Gentiles here. Mm-hmm. And Gentiles then sort of being a shorthand for all of those under the sway of the Roman Empire. And it would be leaving out the Jews. So go and proclaim this to the Gentiles. And mm-hmm. I mean, the way that I read that is the Jews already have the Torah. And all, Jesus, all in the world Jesus has been doing in this gospel is, is saying, no, really, y'all, you got to follow the Torah. Like, really get to the root of it and follow it. And so one way of reading this is the Jews don't actually need to hear this because they've already, got, they've already been given this a long time ago. And so maybe they need their own prophets calling them back to follow the, the root of the Torah. But what's new here is now these Romans who have never heard this before now we can go and tell them. I don't know. I don't. That seems important to me, but I don't quite know how far to push it. That's a really, that's a really interesting, uh, that's an interesting way to take it. And I don't necessarily disagree with it. I, it did it. As I was reading it, what, what occurred to me was just sort of like this message in part because, like, yeah, you're going to have to back up your story further when you're talking to the Romans because a lot of Jesus's teachings start with Torah, you're right? You know, Torah-based stuff, and of course, Jesus has been talking about his interpretations throughout the Jewish community, and so. But it is interesting that the idea of baptism for the Jews is not, maybe, is not being suggested here. I think that's, it depends on how you read ta ethne. Yeah, right. And uh, yes. But I think that, I think we should be open to that reading for sure. Hmm. I also think it's worth noting that Matthew lands again on the ethical dimension, just as he did in Matthew 25. What matters is that you teach them to obey the teachings, right? Teach them to go back and read the Sermon on the Mount and then love their enemies. It's not exact, It's not about baptizing them so that they confess me to be Lord and Savior or anything about who they oh worship. My gosh. That would be such an undoing of the entire gospel. It seems to me like— Can you say more about that? I don't know. Like, I know this just ended, ended with Jesus talking about his authority, which sits a little bit uncomfortably for me. But 
this whole thing has been about bringing the kingdom of God to earth and what that actually looks like in the lives of individual people. So the idea that, that any of this story could be continued and expanded and sort of spread beyond the realm of, you know, the, the land of Israel that they've been in without focusing on that just seems, that's, that seems kind of crazy to me. Yes. Like, what would it even mean to say that you worship Jesus if you didn't right. do all the other stuff? Right. So following along the path, the there's a translation that people have been, have sort of turned me on to. I don't 100% know what I think about it but it's called the First Nations Version. It's an indigenous Mm. translation of the Bible. And so it's trying to translate through the lens of Native American spirituality. Mm -hmm. And the way that they translate this, and they um, will sometimes supply some ideas that are implied but not stated, but you will initiate them into the life of beauty and harmony represented in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit you will then teach them all the ways that I have instructed you to walk in. And I really love that last phrasing, that teach them the ways I have instructed you to walk in, Mm -hmm. which is very biblical, right? All the way back to Torah and Proverbs Mm -hmm. and all these places. But it's obedience just sounds like power over to me. But Mm -hmm. teaching people how to walk in the way sounds more invitational and... There is a path, and if we could all find a yeah. path that, that leads toward these things like beauty and harmony and community, then wouldn't we be in a better place? So I, I kind of like that way of thinking about it. Yeah. No, I like that too. It's a nice, a nice sort of joining together of the different ideas that are all mixed up in here. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways, talking about this, Indigenous translation. One of the ways that this text makes lots of us uncomfortable is in this in our sort of post-colonial era in which we are thinking about all the damaging ways that imperialism and colonialism have harmed people around the world. This text reads like a colonization. And even when you are hearkening back to Moses instructing people how to live in the land where the Canaanites were currently living, there is this sort of undercurrent all the way through about how does teaching people to live in this sort of new way come into conflict, domination, or possibility with people who are living in some other way of life? That's an an enormous question to throw at you, but I'm just (laughs) just going to throw it at you and say, do you have any ways? I mean, one way to handle it is just to say, yeah, this text has imperializing tendencies and we need to be careful about that. But there might be other things that one one could say. I mean... I think this this question gets for me also back to the idea of what is it to teach someone what are the teaches versus teachings that you are passing along versus who do you worship? Yes. Because it's it seems to me maybe this is a totally like imperialist thing to say, but that a lot of the teachings that Jesus has been kind of pushing are about treating each other well and caring for each Mm -hmm. other. And if that's the heart of the message, that that's, it seems like it would be possible to spread that message. Now, one wouldn't want to assume that nobody from other cultures also already thought that because many, many, many cultures have come to that conclusion also. And, but it seems like there, there could be like a lot of common ground there. If there's also the, the requirement that you must do these things because Jesus said them and Jesus is the authority of all of all heaven and earth, that is seems to have more like imperialistically mm-hmm. challenging aspects to it. Yeah. And and you're you often say things like, you know, every religion has its kind of sense that it's right. <laughs> you know, or like, why would right, right. you have? Like, you are entitled to yeah. a truth claim. Yes, you are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful, Amy. And you know, I keep coming back to this idea of Matthew twenty-five, which I, to me, you cannot, you should not read this text without that text, like the judgment mm-hmm. of the nations. 
apart from, or the baptizing of the nations apart from the judgment of the nations. And in that text, as we have said multiple times now, it is exactly people's capacity to lead ethical, compassionate lives. And, and some of them say, when did we do that, Lord? You know, like, oh, we didn't know we were doing that for you, Jesus. Right. And so I think if you read these together, there is very much an opening for what Jesus actually cares about is people living for community and treating each other well and looking out for the most vulnerable. And exactly how you get there is not the first question Jesus is going to ask when the sheep and the goats are gathered before the throne. Yeah. And also you— not you, but as a Christian, you dear reader of Matthew, like the reason you do this thing is because Jesus has all authority on heaven and and earth and you know how the judgment is going to be made. And therefore you, so Christians are acting under that authority because that's our truth, right? And, but it's, it can be understood as showing the world that this other way of life is possible, which brings us back to the, you are the light of the world you are the salt of the earth, these kinds of ideas. Or even back in Isaiah, um, you're, you're going to point all people to the temple. This idea that the way in which you live actually draws people toward this alternative path. It's, it's not easy to, like, I don't think you can pull that sort of imperializ- imperializing notions totally out of it, but I think you can mm-hmm. certainly sort of reframe them in some ways. Yeah. All right, there's yet one last verse, or it's just really just a half a verse. Jesus' last words, which I really like these words. Mm. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. So there is, the gospel ends with this sort of statement of presence. Yeah. you have thoughts about that, way that gospel ends? Mm, thoughts and questions, yeah. One thought is that it reminds me of, of, I guess the story of maybe of Jesus' birth in the beginning when uh, he's announced and it says that you shall call him Emmanuel, which they don't actually. (laughs) I've always wondered why they don't, but they don't. Maybe that's his middle name, Um, which means God is with us. And so to end with Jesus, you know, stepping into all this authority and then saying, I am with you is is a nice sort of connection there. It also reminded me a little bit of that prophetic commission. I have to tease through a little bit how to think about this, but in at least in Jeremiah, oh yeah, there's there's a um, the way that God speaks to Jeremiah is like tell them everything I've told you. Like you need to go out into the world and do this, and then also the promise I will be with you. So I don't know if thinking about it that way puts that disciple I don't want to push it too hard like does that put the disciples in like a quasi like if Jesus Jesus is to God as the disciples are to the prophets I don't know we don't need to turn this into an SAT question but <laughs> but it did it seems like a a commission yes it seems like a commission that's a really helpful connection Amy and you know even thinking about Moses's commission and you know go save mm-hmm. the people from Egypt and God's going to be there speaking through Moses and God doesn't just send Moses off into Egypt. So very from the very beginning, when we see these prophetic calls, there is always that promise of divine presence. That's really helpful to frame that here. So this is a prophetic call for the church and the promise of God's mm-hmm. presence in the, in the person of Jesus. So the church is not just going out into the world willy-nilly, but is going out. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with purpose, with yes. purpose, with purpose and presence. What else do you love in there, Bobby? What else do you see in there? I just like I don't know. There's something like I just really love to be told that somebody is with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Like, like yeah, like I'm thinking about you, or like when you're going through this, whatever you're going to go through today. Like my spouse will say, like I'll be thinking about you today, or. You know, like mm. my thoughts and prayers are with you today or, you know, just like even when somebody is not tangibly there, like I can't reach out and touch them. There's something really comforting just at a deep human level about a promise of presence. And so I love that, you know, this one who has been given power and authority over the kingdoms of the earth is also just saying like, like I'm thinking about you, like I'm there with you, like don't, 
don't feel like you've been left all alone because you haven't. Yeah. I just think that's a really like, I just think that's a really lovely idea. Yeah. But then, Bobby, what do you do with, there's like a timestamp. I'll be with you until next Tuesday. <laughs> no, I'll, be, I'll yeah. be with you until the end of the age. Yeah. Ma? Yes. Ma? <laughs> that means what in Hebrew? Ma? Yeah, so I mean, this is, so the overlapping of the ages is one of the things that to me is the hardest to get our heads around about these sorts of apocalyptic or eschatological images. Because Jesus seems to be initiating something new right here and now. But in fact, the mixing of the empires continues on, and it's going to continue on until some fulfillment in the future which is what we saw narrated at the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Like Jesus says, at the end of the age. So I think what Jesus is saying is, in this time of the mixed empire, in which your task is to go and teach the empire that there is another way of life, I'm not asking you to do that by yourself. I will be Mm -hmm. there with you while you do that. Mm -hmm. And then there will come a time where the sort of final reality of the kingdom of heaven will come in its fullness. And then you you don't need that anymore because now we're in the messianic age. And so Jesus, I think, will also be present there. I see, I see. But the presence is not as urgent Yeah. once the danger is over. That's how I read it. Does that make any yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that this is... This is this the the task that's been given is is time specific. Like it's only during this age that you need to be doing this, and then yeah, in the messianic time. I don't know. Things sound kind of scary then, but yeah. <laughs> but maybe not if you're if you're not if you're a one sheep. of these eleven disciples. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's that such generous of at least my reading of Matthew 25 is so generous about like who when you get separated, like who gets separated. But it's not just about the 11. It's not just about people yeah. who knew they were serving Jesus. It's yeah. about people who treat people with compassion and mercy. And their judgment is harsh against people who don't do that. And like that sits uncomfortably with me about Matthew's gospel. But you can ignore, you can like escape all of that just by compassion, mercy, and non judgment against other people. And then the judgment will be generous toward you. Bobby, you know what this is reminding me of? This is super random, but in the flood story, there are some rabbis who struggle a little bit with how how it was that Noah was told there's going to be a flood and you should build an ark, and he just built the ark and he didn't warn anybody. <laughs> yeah. Like he just, he did what he was told, and yeah. so that was good, but... There just isn't really an opening in that story. Like, it doesn't seem like people have another chance or people, but it seems like that kind of moment. Like, there is the age is coming to an end, and and this the world as we know it is not going to continue to exist this way. But this time, there's a little window to warn yes. people. Warn maybe is not the word you want to use, but it, that's how it feels. Like, there's an urgency about it that's like, if if people don't know, then they can't you know, consider behaving yeah. differently in the world. And so you're telling them. Yeah. No, I think no, that's exactly right. And I think there's meant to be a sense of urgency about this. And I think many Christians do receive this with a sense of urgency. Like we yeah. we need to tell as many people as we can so that when the Son of Man comes on his throne and the sheep are being separated from the goats, then as many people as possible are going to be separated on the sheep's side. Mm-hmm. The problem that many Christians have in my mind is they think that separation is going to be based on who says Lord, Lord. But Matthew has mm-hmm. told us that not all who say Lord, Lord are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew has also told us that many of the sheep who lived compassionate lives didn't realize they were doing it for Jesus. Lord, when did we see you? And so the urgent message is there is an alternative mm-hmm. way of life to the one that is given to you by the Roman Empire. And it looks like this thing that was given to the Jews in the Torah that Jesus has reinterpreted for us in the Sermon on the Mount. So go live like that and let us show you how because we understand and we can be the light of the world. And so they get the urgency, but they miss the message in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Many people like myself are better about getting the message, but sometimes miss the urgency. So like I don't ever tell anybody. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like I shine my little light and I hope somebody notices, you know? And so somewhere in that sort of like, because I mean, the empire is telling you all the time right. that it's the only way of life. And so you've got to be, you got to be living and talking and showing and telling and right. urging. There's another way. There, there's another way. All right, Amy. So that brings us to our, where do we see this text connecting to contemporary life? We've been talking about that a little bit already, but do you have things you want to draw attention to? Bobby, probably unsurprisingly to you, I don't know. I still am, I'm still sitting with what is the relationship between bringing people the truth that you believe to really be true, like capital T true, and Jesus as a as a person, as a entity, bringing that truth and authority and how authority fits into that. Yeah. And I really wish that, I wish that the way the world worked, we didn't need authority yeah. to be in there. That we could, yeah. if you show me that there's another way, I can see immediately that that is, that's the, that's the better way. And I don't, yeah. you know, I don't need, I don't need a power struggle to happen. I mean, as you were saying earlier, the, the forces of the empire, the Roman Empire or the modern capitalist system or whatever, however we want to talk about it, have huge amounts of, of power and authority. And so to imagine that, I don't know if it's just part of how humans are designed, but I don't know. What I feel challenged and also sort of invited to think about how authority, the idea of authority really Mm-hmm. can play out in a healthy way mm-hmm. in my own life of faith in a way that doesn't feel threatening, which is often how it's used or how it has been used yeah. in my life or or motivating without threatening. I don't I yeah. don't know. It, how how can this how can this how can this be a, a fruitful thing in my own life of faith? And I don't have a great answer to that question yet, but I do recognize that we are, this is not just a battle of ideas and feelings. Like this is, we live in the world in, in bodies, in the empire and, and it might, might need a little more oomph yeah. than that. So really it's, it's a question. That's what I end with. I end with a question and not with a, an interpretive nugget. No, that's such an important question. Like, I really love that question. And it's the same question that I think I, I wrestle with with this gospel. Is, is, isn't it enough to show the alternative? I so wish, I wish, yes, isn't it enough? But maybe it isn't enough. To me, and I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I think the answer is for human beings, it's not enough. And people want to yeah. know, like, what is the ground of your authority? And so one of the things that, I don't want us to lose sight of is I do think in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has regrounded authority. So where the empires of the world basically rule power over by threatening death. If you don't, if you don't do what we want, we're going to throw you in jail or we have the power to bomb you if we want to. Mm -hmm. So you better get in line. Jesus's authority has been wielded with the power of life that overcomes death and with the power of liberation that sets the oppressed free. So it is authority, but with the opposite grounding. And I think that gets really confusing for us Christians because we read Jesus has authority and we're so imperial in our mindset. Mm. We think, oh, it's the power to wield death and force people to do what we want. And we miss that the authority that Jesus has, which therefore is the authority that the church has, is the power to bring life and to invite people into an alternative way of existence that lifts up the most broken and lets the oppressed go free. And if we could get that right, we could we really could be yeah. the light of the world. Yeah. But so often we we get confused about we hear authority and we just we can't reimagine authority. That's so helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful. I know we talk a lot in our community about that the king metaphor that's used so much in biblical yes. text. And we don't like it. We don't like the king metaphor, in part because we're thinking about human kings who are a mess. <laughs> yes. But yes, we are 
language is limited and we are, and it is infused everywhere with the empire and, and we are limited and yeah. Yeah. That might be what I want to say about this text. There's other things that one could say for sure, but I think that might be it. Bobby, we finished the book of Matthew. We did finish the book of Matthew. It's hard to believe that we have. I mean, we didn't Matthew. read the entire thing, but we read a lot of Matthew. We read a lot of Matthew. Lot of yeah, Matthew. We, got the, we got the high mm-hmm. points. Mm-hmm. So next time we are headed into the book of Acts. This is what the narrative lectionary does between Easter and Pentecost is it moves into the book of Acts and then into one of the Pauline epistles. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 next time, which is a really lovely story, I think, of the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius to being a follower of Jesus. All righty. Well, I will see you next time then. All right. See you then. Bye. Take care. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dan O'Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll read the story of Peter and Cornelius as told in Acts 10, 1-17 and 34-48. Until then, keep on digging.